0: Welcome to the New Books Network's special series, New Books and Celebration Studies. I'm Emily Allen, the host for this episode. Today's discussion also involves Milo Cozart Ruggio, Angela Marino, and Paolo Vignolo about the edited volume, Festive Devils of the Americas, published by Siegel Books in 2015. The devil is a defiant, nefarious figure, the emblem of evil, and the harbinger of the damned. However, the festive devil, the devil that dances, turns the most hideous acts into playful transgressions. Festive Devils of the Americas presents a transnational and performance-centered approach to this fascinating, feared, and revered character of fiestas, street festivals, and carnivals in North, Central, and South America. As produced and performed in both rural and urban communities and among neighborhood groups and councils, Festive devils challenge the principles of colonialism and nation-states reliant on the straight and narrow opposition between good and evil, black and white, and us and them. Milo cozart is James J. Goodwin, professor of English Emerita at Trinity College. Angela Marino is associate professor in the Department of Theater, Dance, and Performance Studies at the University of California, Berkeley. Paola is associate professor of history, at the National University of Columbia, Bogota. So, Mila, Angela, and Paolo, thank you for joining us on this episode of New Books and Celebration Studies. Thank you, Emily. Yes, thank, thank you, very you, Emily.
1: Much. Great to be here with you.
0: Yeah, very much looking forward to our um, conversation today. So, before we get into the book, can each of you Uh, tell us a little bit more about yourselves. Maybe we can go in the order um, that I just said, Mila, Angela, and Paolo.
2: Okay, hi. Yes, I'm Mila Riggio. I was born in Arkansas, and that's actually rather important to the field I finally ended up in. I went to college in Texas, which is also important. I worked there for this last election to get a real political flavor. Then I studied in Australia and finally ended up at Harvard University where I did my PhD in English and medieval literature. So my actual field of my dissertation is Anglo-Saxon performances, and I studied medieval drama. I finally, and a lot of Shakespeare, which I've taught for many years. I've worked as a professional dramaturg, particularly on Shakespeare performances. I was a founding member of the institute that brought us all three together, and that is the Hemispheric Institute of Performance and Politics. And so that's kind of my background and where I am. I'm the senior member of this team, actually, as you can see, I'm the only America in the group. uh, So I'm happily retired at this point.
3: Hi, so my name is Angela Marino and um, my research focuses on performance and politics. I'm Cuban-American with a focus in my studies on the Caribbean, Latinx, USA, and Latin America. I wrote a book on the relationship between populism and popular performance, like the devil dances in the case of Venezuela. Um, I teach on various forms of social movements in relation to theater and dance. And um, yeah, I think I was the junior member of the team. So I started this when I was a graduate student. Um, So I was fortunate to be mentored by people like Mila and Paolo when we went through the process.
1: Hi everybody, my name is Paolo, Paolo Vignolo. I'm Italian, but uh, I live and work in Colombia since uh, mm, a long time. Uh, and uh, uh, my work is all focused on on public history, um, on um, memory studies and cultural cultural heritage studies. Uh, with a special interest, a special focus on performance and uh, live arts and theater. And uh, I'm really uh, fascinated by this border area between uh, um, activism, political activism, uh, scholarly work and artistic creation which is uh, also sometimes a a no man's land. It's a disputed and and conflicting uh, uh, battleground sometimes. Uh, So that's um, uh, where my focus is. uh, And uh, I think uh, this uh, this festive devils of the America uh, research uh, is very much dealing with, uh, with these areas.
0: Very cool. Thank you all for ta- fill- filling our listeners in, you know, more about your backgrounds and you know, what you kind of brought to the table with the set of volume. Um, and we'll talk more about what else y'all are working on as well later in the conversation. Um, and going on to the next question, Mila started to get at this, but can you, Angela, maybe for our listeners elaborate on how the three of you came to know one, each, one another and edit this book <laughs>
3: Sure, well, I proposed the idea to Paolo Vignolo and one of the collaborators of the book, Seca Ligero, over coffee while we were attending a conference on fiestas in Bogotá, that was in 2007. So like I mentioned, I was a graduate student at the time. And so when Mila came on board, her experience, her the resources that she had, she took a more prominent role um, in stewarding the project. Um, we were always working as a collective, um, but through the five years after the two, 2007 first meeting of Paulo um, and Seca and I, we really grew as a group. So we began to collaborate with more research, more researchers, uh, expand the network, and really develop the concepts of the book through many different engagements.
0: Very cool, and you know, talking more about that um, editing process itself, you know, Mela, did you have something to add?
2: I yes, I just wanted to say again that it was the Hemispheric Institute and in Colombia that brought us all together because Paolo approached me after Angela had approached him. The project was born out of Angela's dissertation. It was her project. And we joined her in her project. Uh, I I had never thought about festive devils as a category before I met Angela Marino, And I've thought about practically nothing else since. So there you
1: go. (laughs) And let me just uh, add a couple of anecdotes, uh, Emily. One is uh, in Buenos Aires, when uh, I first met uh, Mila, we were uh, attending a, 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 an encounter, uh, an encounter, an encounter of the Institute of, uh, um, Enf- Hemispheric Institute of Performance and Politics there. and We just uh, sat down in a coffee in the center of Buenos Aires uh, to talk about, uh, well, we, we both work with carnivals. What can we do about carnivals? And while we were talking just behind us, a group of uh, Bolivian uh, migrants were making a carnival parade. So he said, okay, there's, that's a sign that we, we definitely have to do something with, with festive rituals. And the second one uh, has to do with, uh, with uh, the, the, um, the encounter um, Angela was talking about. Uh, Angela and I wanted to, to make an, an international research group on Fiesta, uh, play and power that was the name of, at the time and so we were started to talk about uh, festive devils as Angela was uh, saying and uh, so we, we made a first meeting and in this meeting uh, uh, Silvia Rivera Kozikanki I want to bring her at our conversation because she had a very important uh, role even if she, she appears just as translator, but she has been much more than a translator in this in this uh, project. So she came out in, with the group and said, oh, there's something very ab- absurd that is happening in my country because uh, uh, Peru and Bolivia are, are almost uh, having a, a, a diplomatic crisis because uh, the candidate of Miss Universe uh, from Peru dressed uh, a... a, a uh, as a, a festive devil of Oruro, which is Bolivia. And so there is a big quarrel. So we we all together said, oh, we should definitely do something. Maybe me, make a, a big uh, festive devil meetings on the border of Peru and Bolivia, just to remember everybody that uh, festive devils come much earlier than this political border. So to an of saying, like, how, how we got together in this project a little bit.
0: Wow. Oh, my gosh. that's sounds like it was just meant to be with all these kind of different incidental, but also not so incidental things that factored in. I'll be uh, interested to hear more about these. Or our listeners will be interested to hear more about these case studies, too, I think, um, as we go on, too. And then... You know, all three of you can answer this next question as well. You kind of talked about the foundation of how this book came about. But once you got into it, what was that process of compiling and editing and writing for this book like? Um, So maybe we can go in the same order, uh, Mila, Angela and Paolo.
2: Well, the first problem was to find a publisher. And we went through a lot of options. And so in some ways we finally ended up with the enactment series of Seagull Press. And I have to say that I think we lucked out because that was an editorial team from heaven. I mean, not from hell. It was really a perfect editorial team. They were tremendously helpful, very useful. They gave us everything we wanted. They let us publish this 400 page book. They let us have as many pictures as we liked. And then they themselves a tremendous amount of work. So I think the quality of the book finally is partly owing to that. And they printed on better paper because we had so many pictures and still charged a reasonably modest price for the book. So that was, but it took a long time to get there. And so we had to go through many iterations of what the book was actually going to be. And I'm going to stop now and let Angela and Paolo talk. But I do think our differences, the, the real differences between the three of us Paolo, an Italian working and living in Colombia, Angela, the graduate student at New York University, whose project this was in the first place, and me, who is effectively a medievalist turned festive theorist in a weird sort of way for reasons I can talk about later. We all brought very, very different uh, points of view, and sometimes those harmonized, and sometimes they clashed. And I think both the clashes and the harmonies are in the spirit of the festive devil. right? <laughs> and I think they all contributed to a process that made the book just about as good as I think we three could possibly have made it. And now it's Angela's turn.
3: Well, I'll just add that I think the time that we took to develop the ideas in conversation with practitioners, with culture producers, with communities and building from really grounded ethnographic research that um, involved long-term commitments and um, including, it wasn't just about us writing about culture producers and artists, it was artists writing and creating within the book um, their own voices. And so I think that was really, to me, that was the one of the most gratifying, or or more, um, really, a, a, the the learning process through conversation and deep conversation with people about what it what it's like to to practice the devil dances, you know, and to understand this figure of the devil that really has been imposed on so many people so cruelly for so many centuries. So I think that, um, in part, the collective work that we engaged with was its own uh, radial sphere of collectivity that, you know, in its own way through scholarship, it can be its own devil dance. (laughs) And so I think we were, um, like Mila said, really having to go deep into different issues and our own subjectivity and relationship to them. And I think we couldn't have done that without a a really a collective process. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, it it was definitely a a long, fruitful, challenging uh, collective process. And when I say collective, uh, it's not just the three of us. Uh, I think uh, the the first... um, The starting point was to to realize that the festive devil is one of the main performing characters of a popular culture in the whole continent and beyond. But we we just stick to the Americas. And its uh, its presence is uh, uh, incredibly wide. I mean, literally from Patagonia to Canada, there are festive devils in carnivals, in patr- uh, patronal uh, festivities, uh, in Corpus Christi, in in a number of uh, uh, traditional and contemporary um, uh, festivities, uh, Burning Man, just to make an example that is not part of this Catholic tradition, but uh, plays an important role in the book. And then, uh, uh, the big effort was to, to make a network, not just of uh, academic people, but of uh, activists, of uh, creators, of artists uh, or grassroots uh, artists that were really um, uh, embedding, incorporating, uh, using their voice and body to, to play the devils and not only writing about them. Yeah. So the, this uh, this dialogue, I think it was very important. And even if uh, the book is a scholarly book, it uh, its uh, sources are very much part of this uh, 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 research action somehow. Uh, and uh, finally, the idea that the book was a starting point was not just ending; it was a platform. In this sense, that uh, the 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 um, the website that angela uh, created and uh, promoted uh, uh, has played an important role it was the other side of the book there was the book but it, there was also uh, the idea of uh, keep on researching and 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 uh, uh, nourishing this network and uh, uh, as mila was saying uh, at the beginning uh, uh, we are still doing stuff with that. I mean, we, we, we organized the uh, 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 first council of festive devils in a beautiful Baroque church uh, in the center of Bogota last year, just before the pandemics uh, came in. Uh, uh, and that that's some, somehow part of this uh, long process that uh, started with the book.
0: Yeah, I think content that you have both in the book and I looked at the website as well, it definitely is complimentary and, you know, brings all these different like aspects of these festival devils to light. Like, you know, for even the, just looking at the book itself, you have both prose, but you have those photo essays as well. I thought that were really interesting way of showcasing, you know, how these characters, you know, manifest. So I thought that definitely came across um, the different types of content Um, but before getting too far into the content, just a little bit more context for our listeners as well, you know, can you explain to our listeners what exactly we mean by a festive devil, right? So thinking about the introduction as well, you know, how did these characters manifest across the Americas? Um, Angela, if you want to take this one. Sure. Yeah, well, one of
3: the The aims of the book is to show this wide range of the ways that the devil shows up in popular fiestas, carnivals, and other forms of festive performance. Um, But I think what's important to show as well is how this devil figure was an importation, right? So it was brought in with Christian colonial Manichaean beliefs that, as we argue in the book, were transformed and ultimately mixed or metabolized or otherwise resignified in the process of those festive performances. And just making the devil festive in itself was part of doing that. So um, it varies in each of the cases of the book. Um, and like we've talked about, there are, you know, a number of contributing authors um, and really terrific writing um, and context and perspectives in each of those pieces. But in many of these cases, what we found is that the festive devil heals or helps to manage the trauma of devil beliefs. And um, it's a different way of thinking than the Bakhtinian reversal of of festival. It's maybe more akin to Fanon and some of the other decolonial thinkers um, who I think are interested in how do people manage and at times consume yet withhold recreate resignify and otherwise maintain or be able to reproduce a cultural way of life against what a an oppressive system would impose does impose right um and so in this case the holders of traditions cultural producers of fiestas festivals dances um And by no accident, these are communities that are Black indigenous communities of the Americas who were hit hardest by these forms of violent conversion. So it's no accident that these same communities have built up sophisticated cultures of resistance. And that's where we found this really interesting um, pattern that was happening across different communities of the Americas who were centering the devil turning the devil festive and in fact allowing communities to metabolize and transform those devil beliefs that were so violently imposed upon them I don't know if you want to add Mila Paolo there's so much that could be said to this but
2: Yes, I would like to add just one or two very quick little things. Uh, One is, again, this is sort of my background as a medievalist. I had studied medieval plays in Europe and especially England. So you have these devils that are comic because they run around all over the place in a context that is not actually colonial or post-colonial, but bear many resemblances to our festive devils. So part of the question is how that transformation takes place when it reaches the Americas and moves into a colonial and post-colonial world, which is really very different, though not so completely different because so much of the resistance in Europe was, um, was uh, a resistance from below like a resistance of popular culture in a way against authorities who were establishing uh, um, authority, authoritative hierarchies of one kind and another. And then I think the second thing I would say is that you ask what the festive devil is. What the festive devil is not is the Puritan devil. And the Puritan devil had a huge influx of importance in the Americas as a terrifying, horrifying creature that is going to devour you and send you into flames forever that has nothing playful about that character at all. It is completely overwhelming. Whereas our devil, I think, comes more largely in Christianity from the Catholic perspective, because the Catholic religion compared to the Puritan version of Christianity has a level of mysticism and a kind of concept of the demonic, which always was, could be playful. <laughs> and so there's a kind of clash between religions, as it were, even though they're all called Christian, that really plays out in the evolution of this character.
1: Yes. And then um... Another aspect that I would like to to underline is that, that when we talk about festive devils, we are not talking about just manifestations of some pre-capitalist, modern society as, uh, in uh, in los andes and in, in bolivia related to colombia uh, the the relation between the carnival Trinitar carnival and the oil industry but also monocultures in the caribs uh, and the other forms of capitalism expansion in the in the book we talk about uh, how um, in North American indigenous territories, uh, the casino culture makes uh, festive devils uh, uh, appearing as, uh, or the malandro, uh, this figure that uh, appears uh, in, in Brazilian culture or the trickster uh, in, in, uh, in, in North America. So uh, we were very interested in working somehow uh, how festive devils uh, uh, has to do with the colonial in colonialism and capitalism and and ju- just to to uh, take the point that Miller was uh, was uh, doing uh, this this has a long um, uh, it comes from a long way behind if we take uh, um, uh, the Faust. In the Faust, uh, Goethe uh, performs the birth of financial capitalism in the middle of a carnival. Mephistophel, that is disguised as a juggler, that advises the king in how to invent paper money. So, so the relation between festive devils and uh, and this, uh, this uh, tension between... Uh, uh, the moral economies uh, uh, that are free, uh, uh, under threat because of capitalism is is one of the like uh, lines that goes uh, across all the case studies uh, we we find in the book.
0: Yeah, and we'll come back to that. I think, especially once we get to kind of the shift that happens in the Northern Devil section, um, with that too. I think. Uh, that we'll come back to and you know I thought too it was interesting how this was a very place-based you know organization to the book right it's kind of almost like that you're traveling from place to place as you go across um, the different sections and chapters you know so you make the reader feel like they're going and experiencing these festivities in that way so you know taking our listeners on this tour of Festive Devils let's start First, with the Andean and Pacific Coast Devil section, um, you state that these chapters in this section quote share the examples of indigenous and/or African-based popular remaking of these festive events in the wake of contemporary migrations and struggles over territorial cultural rights. End quote. So, you know, how have the festive, festive devils and these case studies contributed to that? You started getting it all this, you know, a little bit ago, but Paolo, if you want to talk about the section.
1: Yes, I think uh, there is uh, somehow, uh, uh, I mean, the the presence of the maps is is not just by chance. Uh, We're trying to like uh, uh, draft uh, a a geopolitics of devilish uh, uh, in devilish uh, uh, rituals uh, work, but uh, we were very, very, uh, uh, fascinated by this proliferation of uh, of uh, of uh, the figure of the festive devils in very different situations, right? Uh, so, and maybe there is another point that that uh, has to do uh, with this, and uh, has to do with the importance uh, for us of the agency of festive devils. I mean. Uh, we consider individuals and communities who create festive devils, performance, and rituals, not as uh, uh, simple tradition bearers and practitioners as the intangible cultural heritage, uh, rhetorics, uh, but as cultural agents, which means that there are communities, symbolic and and, and uh, if we take the notion of the uh, potentially they can uh, express uh, meaningful proposals to address a uh, uh, great challenge of our times. I mean, the festive devils in this sense can negotiate social conflicts. Uh, and uh, mm, the, the case uh, we, we work on uh, in uh, the research carnivals it is a good example of it in, in Colombia. Yes, they can uh, um, be very active uh, in uh, uh, the case for environmental and social justice. Uh, They can be uh, important uh, actors uh, in in, in issues as political, economic, or gender violence, uh, or reduction of inequalities. So in in this sense, there is an epistemological turn in in our long-term research. Rather than studying festive devil's manifestations in order to protect traditions from the dangers of the contemporary world, and that has always this implicit risk to either transform them into cultural commodities for the touristic industry, or to to condemn them to, to depend on, precarious state welfare policies. There are a long, number of examples of it uh, through the book. Uh, rather than that, we are interested in their proficiencies to active collective uh, processes focused on change. So I think uh, that uh, the, the essays uh, uh, of the Andinian Andean Pacific Coast Devils uh, have a lot to do with it. And they have to a lot to do with it also because we count uh, with... Uh, Uh, fantastic collaborators, Uh, Miguel uh, Rubio Zapato and Amel Cayo are uh, among the protagonists of of the theater scene scene in in Peru and uh, the work that Thomas Abercrombie um, uh, develops also touches this point and uh, Monica Rojas I don't have time to, to get, like, uh, far down on each uh, on each of the chapters, but uh, I think that's uh, one one of the central points that comes out of it.
0: And Mill uh, and Angela, did you all have anything you wanted to add? Well, I could add
3: that it was one of the conversations that we had about how to organize the book, and I think someone floated initially, I, I don't even know if it was among us or someone of the collective, but should it be by country, you know, and that was um, really rejected. I mean, we said no. and in fact, we we didn't want this to be a travel log, right? I mean, it's it's in a sense, it is,, um, I think we would have benefited from reading some of the books about black geographies, for example, at this time, by at the time that we were writing it, um, we weren't exposed to those ideas yet, and, uh, but I see them now and I think, oh, if we had been in conversation with that at that earlier point, and maybe we do a postscript or something, because there is something about mapping and mapping diasporas that moves very differently across land and time. I think we tried to get to it in the sections by um, picking bioregions and community regions and trying to understand them regionally as opposed to just another political line in the sand, you know. Um, And I think that's what the devils actually are showing is that this dance and performance practice are allowing um, a way to show how people have moved, have migrated, have traveled. Sometimes it's been forced migration, um, but people carry with them their own record, their own archive, in a sense, through these... Um, migrations on the way that people carry on those traditions and practices so it's things in music and in song and in rhythms and then different ways that what people bring to the to the actual fiesta um, how it's celebrated and the meanings of the diablo inside those fiestas right so um, I'll just add that for now
2: I, I would like to add one little thing to that uh, uh, about the maps. The maps were not uncontroversial, even among us, um, because the maps have to have national boundaries to have people positioned. Uh, Angela's talking about the Black geographies, but we really had a question about whether uh, whether to use these at all. You know, should the map be upside down? Uh, should, should we invert it? It's, we're talking about festive devils. So that was not a simple decision. But in the end, while we were dealing with regions and we really wanted to talk about the Parallel similarities and differences across wide swaths of, of territory. You know, how these devils have in common and don't have in common things with people and devils far away. Uh, at the same time, we did feel that we needed to position our readers with a little bit of familiarity because there are so many different places that we talk about. And that in a way they understood, because it's traditional, we thought finally that we needed to help them map the journey, as, as you called it, Emily, that these devils have taken. Because it's, our book is such a little part of this journey. I mean, there are so many more devils and so many more journeys than we were able to transcribe. Uh, so I, I would just add that.
0: Yeah, I could see how it would be, in terms of organizing this book, very difficult to do so. There would be a lot of possibilities to do that, like any way with all these the like you said the breadth of this volume for sure. You know, makes that quite tricky, and going on to. Um, the next section uh caribbean afro-atlantic section um in terms of you know generalizations about these essays you state that quote they predominantly deal with the influence of the african diaspora going back to that concept the events are mainly produced by afro-descendant co-fraternal and neighborhood networks or smaller intergenerational networks end quote And this makes me think about something that has kind of already been brought up in our discussion a little bit but specifically in the introduction with blackness often being at the center of fiesta and carnival the source quote from which many colors of festive devils emerge end quote so can you talk about how blackness is tied to festive devils in the context of these chapters Um, Mila? if you want to take this one sure sure
2: um yes uh you know i had particular Problem dealing with the question of Blackness because of my own race. I mean, I'm always very sensitive to the fact that it's difficult to speak as an insider when you're not an insider and when there's no possible way that you can be. So, for my own essay, I partnered with an Afro uh, Trinidadian named Raul Gibbons, who is an Orisha priest and really brings to bear the whole concept of African religion in relationship to the Christian. A transformation of these festivals and given that starting point we did deal quite consistently with the concept of blackness and there we found in writing our own essay, uh, that we kept running into clashes that were not making sense because some of the analysis is sociological and historical. How did these festive devils grow out of a culture of of colonization and a period of enslavement? Some of it had to do with mythology, the mythology of the ancestors and the whole idea that you have located those ancestors, that you have to draw a map for them so they can find you in the new world when they want to look for you that you have ancestral presences that are mythic and that blackness is tied to that mythos and then you move a little beyond that and you realize that blackness is also linked with cosmic cycles and the turning of the seasons and the turning of day and night and we have a sense that dark And darkness, and many of these peoples, we talk about the Afro origin, but particularly in Trinidad, where I do most of my work, that origin is also Indo. I mean, the island is split between people from Africa, people from India, 80% of the population, and then 20% from everywhere else in the world. So we had to deal with this concept of Blackness theoretically. And Roland and I decided to split it into this notion of what was sociological, what was uh, mythic, and what was cosmic to try to get at some of that. But dealing with Blackness also means dealing with destruction. And one of the things I had to learn really through this book is that perhaps Christianity is one of the few religions in the world that believes destruction is real or that it's absolute or that it exists as the end of something. Because most religions believe that destruction is an ongoing part of a process of change that just continues to rebuild and regrow. And it's not quite the same thing as dying and having your soul rise again. It's a very different Process of transformation and continuity, and so we started with that idea that we were dealing with people in a social situation, also people in um, in th- that were building on their own mythologies, and then then we had to deal with day and night, with the cosmic turning of the seasons, and that sort of thing. One of the things that Angela kept pointing all the time towards is what she calls the devil's turn. And it is the title of her essay in this uh, Caribbean section on Venezuela. That is the devil never moves in a straight line. And it's just impossible. That's the way the devil cannot walk. The devil twists and turns and bends and shifts. And that kind of movement is really more the movement of the universe itself, at least in its circular patterns. It runs through orbs and orbits. And it's not a straight moving world that we live in. Straight and narrow is the world of commerce it is the world of fundamental Christianity. It is the world of moving from here to there as if the straight line somehow was the shortest distance or the best distance. And so I think all of these Caribbean essays, Angela's, um, um, uh, I'm particularly interested in David Guss's essay on the Kumana devil, which is also one of the photographic essays, because that devil comes from Trinidad. One of the things we learned is that these devils have a diaspora of their own and somebody named Ernesto, Ernesto who we don't know, brought this black devil, this jab molasses sort of devil to uh, the painted black devil to Venezuela, right? And that devil still exists in what looks like a very fearful form there. I've discovered that the same thing happened in Honduras. There are Trinidad blue devils that migrated to Honduras. So there's a migratory pattern <clears throat> that these devils proceed. And then they they represent different responses to authority. In Trinidad, the devils are resistant, they're subversive, uh, and they are affirmative. They're affirming a counterculture. You know, at the beginning of our essay, we use a little epigraph from Ana Maria Alonso that says the outlaw is the only hero. The devil is the only ally in a world in which both justice and God are on the enemy's side. Shakespeare has a passage like that in Titus Andronicus in which Aaron says, the gods are not on our side, boys, pray to the devils, right? The gods have given us over. So the idea that if your gods, the gods you were made to worship are not on your side, they are making laws that oppress you, then if you're using the mythology of that religion, the devil is the only place to go. But when you go there and you go there with screaming laughter, as well as danger and fear. One of the things about my festive devils, the ones in Trinidad, is they're very fearful, many of them, so that they carry They use whips and they use whips. Max Harris wrote about that also. They use whips throughout the Caribbean. They, they bring with them levels of danger that you must come to terms with. But while they do that, they're also affirming a kind of alternate order. Angela's devils in Corpus Christi in Venezuela are also subversive, but in a completely different kind of way. That is, they work collectively, they don't move individually, and they work dance steps that are patterned and learned. But at the same time, by representing their own community and a cofrati or some group inside that community, they are also resisting the authority that they seem to serve. <laughs> they seem to affirm. An authority that I would say, Angela argues persuasively, they are at the same time resisting. So blackness as the origin, the African origin of these people, but also as a cosmic and mythic concept is embedded in the way these devils become affirmative and what they have to affirm as a counterculture within and yet apart from the structure of the religion that has imposed these Uh, authoritarian, and oppressive laws. I don't know if that really answers the question, but I can stop there and let uh, uh, Paolo and Angela add a little more if they want to.
1: Yeah, I would just uh, like to add that that, uh, each of the contributions of the book addresses in a way or in another uh, issues of of, uh, of race and uh, of ethnicity and gender as well, uh, but uh, from very different perspectives. And we made uh, an effort to open the range, uh, not to, I mean, it's impossible to talk about festive devils without talking about race and, and ethnicity issues, mm-hmm. but uh, it would be a mistake uh, to, to circumscribe it. to to just uh, uh, black communities or indigenous communities. Uh, So, so, and it's uh, the connections, the tensions, the overlapping that uh, are are the most interesting part. The playing of taking the the other, the others as as in Thomas Overcombe's uh, essay it's very interesting how uh, he plays uh, on 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 the on what goes on in oruro where white elite place to be uh, to dress as cholo uh, 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 girls and uh, uh, peasants play as a civi- civic civic uh, uh good civic uh, uh, Mm, members of the Bolivian state uh, and uh, all these kind of crossings that uh, somehow allows us to 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 touch the the tensions, the asymmetries, uh, the, the the power uh, relations uh, uh, that are in society and they come out in the in the festive uh, uh, celebrations. That's why it's so interesting to study festive celebrations because uh, they are a, a very Powerful insight to understand the, the tensions that uh, that are around in in a, in, in, in a specific uh, uh, social context.
3: I would just add that part of I think what makes it so interesting are that there are many different contexts of production, and of course the um, as Paulo is saying, these different tensions around power are so different in each context in which the the devil performances are taking place so in the case of venezuela just pointing out benito Irade's essay um, and thinking about the intergenerational networks that are really creating a, a very different structure system of power authority so that they become in themselves their own you know maybe an I don't mean to translate it um, badly through Laclau or some of the work around populism, but there is the political formation of the social. Like these are, there is a politic in it. As people are producing the fiestas, they're also building up other forms of authority, systems, controls, um, in ways that re-situate how political structures are. And so you see, well then, who comes forward as powerful in these fiestas? Oh, you see it's, you know, Senora Rodriguez who's at the end of the street, who has the altar where everyone goes, right? And, and these really change up what politics mean in a place. And I think that's where we get, you know, an expansion of um, the, what Miller was saying, counterculture. And we start to see it as really um, the base from which people build out to create political cultures um, that also enable psychic and cultural and all kinds of even physical transformation and building and the reproduction of of society. That doesn't have to follow the imposed society, which is is so much under contest right now. Like we are still in a period of genocide we are in a period of genocide. It's not that it's in the past, it's in the present. And so this is where the front lines are really, you know, at battle. Um, so it's really interesting to see where, yeah, how, how to continue to see that as a model and example and the, um, the, to recognize all this complexity that can be played out within the festival performance and the potential for those performances to show us a model, new ways of governance.
0: Yeah, maybe. Think, go ahead, Paolo, sorry. Sorry if I step in, uh,
1: and Angela, maybe there is another devil's turn there, right? Another shift where we used to think about the uh, uh, festive celebrations as a liminal state that can show us uh, uh, like uh, the real social structures. But for many of these communities, uh, the festive uh, structures are the real thing. (laughs) They're not just liminal, are real powerful uh, uh, structures. So, So it's a little bit the other way around. I think that is the
3: thesis
2: of the book. Itself, the whole book is precisely that. I mean, that is the thing that ties all of these essays together, I would say. Go ahead, Angela, you were going to say something.
3: Oh, just to say that, in fact, they very much are real. I would even say, you know, when we say mythos or mysticism, that that runs into its own kind of linguistic trapping as well. So I get very full, full well what Mila is saying by that. Um, But these are very, very real epistemologies. There is nothing mystical about it in the sense of it being uh not real or illusion or under you know just to clarify that term um and and other scholars have written really well on that um but i know that there's so much more to talk about um and i don't want to negate anything that Miller was saying about that which i just think we did find ourselves always in terminology right and What's also fascinating is how when you're doing a hemispheric project is how, what kinds of terms are people using in different contexts? And they were very different. You know, what, what each community might think of their own um, performance tradition and how they describe it and in which, which ways is it operating. Um, so I just want to point that out.
2: But I don't disagree with any of that. And by mystical, I didn't mean unreal. I simply mean the presence of those things that we know to be real, but we cannot see. So it's really an anti-phenomenological term, not a term about unreality. Uh, And I understand Angela's point that you have to be careful what terms you use because they carry connotations that come from the past. But a myth of identity is as real as the historical story of identity. Those things merge together to create what we call identity, and they have an absolute reality uh, about them all the time, uh, without question.
0: Yeah, and I think that question actually ended up going in a lot of directions. I didn't expect it to, but in a great way. And uh, that I think you all just teased out kind of the, some broader implications that even if a reader didn't know anything about festive devils, there would be several takeaways, as you all were getting at, that definitely resonate, especially in our present moment, um, I mm. think, with this book. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> this, there's a lot to this book. Um, even, what, five plus years later at this point. (laughs) So um, going on to the next section, uh, we have, of course, our Northern Devil section where we see festive devils operate in capitalist regions like New Mexico and Nevada, as well as um, the way it was framed as a case study showing the influence of migration per the Afro-descendant devil dances in Mexico. So directing this one to Angela, how do you see these different factors um, come into play with these northern festive devils.
3: Yeah, thank you. Well first you know when we were pulling together notes for the for our conversation today it was just amazing to me that we're even 13 years past the original thinking of the book. So so much has really transformed um, and um, and I'm sure each of the each of these case points have, changed as well so I would be really curious I think Anita Gonzalez is just a top rate scholar she is did a, an amazing essay on the Mexican devil dances in Costa Chica so really um, seeing that um, that performance I think was maybe more connected we had a lot of conversation about this should it be in the northern should it be in the because in a sense it was so similar to the devil performances in Peru or in the Caribbean. And that was one of the instances where you can see how people have moved and migrated and are really working to be acknowledged as a community, finding others who are doing dance that are similar to them and able to also see how, wow, how has this community moved? Like, where are we now? We're here in Mexico. Um, I'm not sure it was entirely connected to the kind of northern New Mexico and Nevada Burning Man, so that was a stretch. But in in referencing, um, you know, Enrique La Madrid, who is again another um, one of the preeminent scholars of the Southwest and in festive traditions, um, I was so fortunate to have him also as a mentor at the University of New Mexico. Um, his, his work talks about the stories of the devil turning up in dance halls, right and how um, it's corresponding to these tensions from northern New Mexico where the capitalist influence of the Los, uh, sorry Los Alamos National Laboratory, where the H-bomb was conceived and all of this you know in a very white upper upper middle class middle class community moving into um, a rural, area of of Northern New Mexico. And, you know, these internal threats start to come around. Tensions are happening, a polarizing class division among the communities there. So he's drawing that out through dance hall appearances of the devil and what those stories then have meant to be able to call out those kinds of tensions in Northern New Mexico. Um, Rachel Bowditch, who is another, really one of the the main researchers of Burning Man, you know, takes on the ways that Burning Man um, confronts capitalism both directly as a subject of the festival itself, and also implicated into how the festival as a production is taking place in Nevada. Like, what did that mean for all this, you know, sudden um, group to kind of come on to this land and um, operate this enormous production um, there, and and how does that, um, how how did the festival itself have to encounter encamp- it have to contend with its own politic, and its own relationship to capitalism, um, as a festival. So I thought that essay also was brilliant. So. I'm so intrigued now to hear Mila talk once again about the Puritan and Catholic. You know, I'm thinking of someone like Canisare Esquera, who really thought about from the book Puritan Conquistadores and the ways that the Puritan and Catholic um, context were so different. Um, but I did see, yeah, the northern devils feel like they really are in the belly of the beast, you know, and they're having to contend from the inside And, um, you can see almost the, the desire to be able to maybe do that, which other festive devils can, but also really contending with, and having to play more with the overt or explicit ways that, the you know, devil gets signified as this more Puritan devil. So contending with the evil of the devil. Um, and I don't know that we see the same kind of Collective um, ensemble groups that can do the devil dances, unless we look to um, people who are doing devil dances like uh, Rosa, right? Um, um, and some of the um, people really intentionally working through theater companies to try to remake um, devil dances for themselves and their community because they're connected to other. Latino groups throughout, you know, Latin America or the Caribbean. So there's that too, kind of what are people doing to try to restore their traditions in the United States as immigrant communities? I think that's fascinating as well.
0: And uh, Mila and Paolo, did you have anything you want to expound as well? uh, No. No, thank you.
1: Go back just a second to... Let me go back to uh, uh essay on Burning Man, because uh, I think uh, there is something very powerful in the way she addresses uh, the 96 uh, uh, version of Burning Man, where the narrative goes around uh, 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 hell and, and, and the devil figure. So uh, the, the, the idea is uh, that uh, uh, there is the sale of Burning men to the mega corporation Elko, run by Papa Satanas. And so uh, there is a, a hostile uh, takeover, and uh, uh, this uh, may, may create a cosmically integrated vertical marketing system with hell and the earth and heaven. So this is a parody on capitalism made. Uh, in a festival that, that is aiming to be the place of countercultural Western Western coast uh, counter, cu- uh, counterculture, and where the gift and countergift uh, system is taking place, and where the potlatch uh, logics are uh, are at at place, And just in that addiction, uh, the, the, all the contradictions come out. I mean, when the when the festive devils becomes a protagonist. All the tensions, you know, the idea, the 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 the, the shout, the, the cry, uh, Burning Man is not for sale. That becomes the like big uh, market branding of, of the festival, and it's just a turning point uh, where the festival becomes something else, and becomes a real important commercial event that is going to have brands uh, all over. Or enfranchising all over the country, so I, I think uh, that uh, uh, it's a good example of how the articles, and the collaborations of the book are not just the case studies uh, of of uh, some kind of ethnographic research, but try to uh, explore this this uh, difficult frontier. And uh, these paradoxical uh, narratives uh, that the festive devils uh, bring out.
0: Yeah, and it, as we've been talking, I definitely see more and more how there's so many connections between these, you know, different chapters. They're not all that separate, you know. They they're, they each have their own, you know, like you said, things that they're complicating. But there's certainly several through lines that we can see, and you. I think, think you all also try to get at that in part three as well um, with the section crossings to an extent. You know, obviously there's still very distinctive chapters, but there are certain things that you can connect from one to the other. So, uh, Mila, if you want to discuss your chapter in that part, and then Paolo, if you want to discuss your chapter as well.
2: Um, the first thing I would like to say is about the structure itself. You know, Angela has the introduction at the beginning of the book, and then I have a chapter called Matters of the Spirit, which is really sort of quasi-theological and metaphysical manifestations and how the devil is a creature of the spirit and what that means and what it implies and Paolo is going to talk about economic and political and to some extent uh, monetary realities and in con- the creation of the devil but we thought of this as a way to make the book circular uh, since we're dealing with circles and we're dealing with renewals and rebeginnings beginnings and with trans- destruction as transformation, uh, that sort of thing. So we thought the book could be read backwards and forwards because what the end of the book does is go back through those essays that can constitute the very large middle section of the book, by far the largest section of the book, and then bring them together in pointing out some of the crossovers and some of the things they have in common and some of the ways in which they differ. Um, uh, And so the book itself is thought to be really a kind of circular thing. My own essay builds on my background. I'm the daughter of a Baptist preacher and a Methodist choir director. Uh, My parents wanted me to be a missionary when I was 10 years old. And so I've always been a creature of the spirit, even when I want to deny it. And when I feel like I will never go into a Protestant church again, I realize that I'm not so very far away from Christianity as I hope to be or wish to be. So that for me, the the question is always what are the metaphysical implications? What are the things that transcend the physical? And to go back to uh, um, Angela's mentioning my talking about mysticism, those are the real things to me. Those are the things that are more real than the things I actually see. The table in front of me is less real than what we cannot see. And and I think that's just verifiable scientifically in many kinds of ways. But I was also interested in the sort of process of mind in memory of the past and projections into the future and sort of the sense of how the mind processes those things and how the ancestral past becomes the future. This whole notion of 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 spiral time or time that spirals around uh, and moves forward even as it incorporates the past into it. That the devil is a creature. The festive devil is a creature of those revolutions uh, of time and also transforming space because space too is something that we can see and not see. It's something that is real, Whether it's visual or not. And so there's a sense that how these festive devils, the Manichaean was very interesting to me because Christian Manichaeanism is not the same thing as the Christian concept of good and evil. Because for Manichaeans, evil is an independent world. <laughs> it's a place that exists independently. Of uh, It's not under the control of one all-controlling and all-powerful God. So when you deal with good and evil, and again, I think Christianity may just be about the only religion that has a full sense of evil, of absolute evil, that there is such a thing as evil. The other one might be Islam, and that may be why these two religions fight each other so powerfully on the fundamental level, because they both believe in that. But our devil is not the sort of devil that belongs to that burning Protestant world of uh, absolute rejection. It's a devil that generates and transforms and adds elements of destruction that are also creative. And I just wanted to point those out. The last thing I would say is that we talk a lot about subversion and inversion and affirmation of the local culture, the community, or or whatever ethos is being established in resistance to authority. But festive devils are, by and large, intelligent creatures. They're also creatures that bring thought processes they're they're smart many of them are smart not all of them they're many manifestations of the devil but they're also can be highly intellectual And so they are kind of a way of bringing an understanding that has a tremendous sense of, of thought process to the turning of the world and to the movement from past to future. And through present generations that we all live in with various concepts of how our ancestors relate to us, you know, whether we think that world is porous and that they cross back or not. Uh, they're always and emphatically there, and so I think my essay focuses kind of on that juncture uh, and that world that isn't phenomenological, and the devil as a creature of that mis- that metaphysical alternative.
1: The, the starting point uh, of uh, of uh, my crossings articles. Uh, was uh, uh, the excuse somehow was uh, the, the dispute I was telling you about at the beginning between Peru and Bolivia you no know? uh, how come two countries have a diplomatic crisis on how somebody's dressed uh, in a muse, miss Universe uh, um, presentation uh, and so the the A a number of reflections come out of it. Uh, I just uh, want to um, stress on two. One is uh, the power of uh, festive devils uh, to um, bring uh, long duration uh, memories and to make them um cross and then thank and uh, and uh, so uh, that is always present when we talk about festive devils uh, allows connections uh, that uh, are not uh, obvious at all and that, that, that put us stake uh, our idea of uh, temporality I would the idea of cause-effect kind of links, but uh, that uh, um, enter in the public uh, arena in a very meaningful way. When a, a festive devil whip is used, it can refer to colonialism uh, time, colonialist times. Uh, it can refer to uh, the 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 the. the Old memory, the ancestral memory that bodies still recognize of the experience of, of, of being slaves and can refer to the torture of a 20th century or 21st century uh, dictatorship. See? At the same time, in the same moment, in the same performatic moment, and the audience recognize it, even if for us uh, from the outside, sometimes it's difficult to recognize. So that means that uh, uh, this kind of uh, uh, um, elements that uh, can be considered totally superficial and, and dumb, uh, can trigger very powerful memories and can put uh, uh, social emotions uh, uh, in, in, in movement. Uh, the other, the other aspect uh, that uh, I think it's worth uh, considering is uh, uh, these big um, um, devices that uh, are working to somehow control uh, festive energies that are social energies. You know, uh, Miss Universe is one. I'm not going to talk about it, but uh, and Trump's example. Is a good example of how we should take very seriously uh, miss uh, universe uh, context uh, and not just uh, uh, take it uh, for granted or for something that is not worth uh, having a look a, a deeper look at. But uh, I, I, I would like to say a couple of words about uh, uh, cultural heritage and all the UNESCO. Uh, formats and devices and uh, uh, offices and functionaries that work in order to uh, classify, put hierarchies, organize, defend, salvaguard and uh, these, these kind of manifestations. Because uh, this is neither innocent nor. Uh, uh, when, when we talk about uh, about uh, this tension, about uh, if the festive devil's uh, dress is uh, Peruvian or Bolivian, uh, we are getting into a very complex dispute about cultural industries. Uh, which is what the uh, what the Bolivian side said. Uh, we, we, we're not defending just an idea or, or like a tradition. We are. We don't have cultural industries, but we have a carnival, and the, the tourist comes out of it is absolutely absolutely. Mm-hmm. Territorial marketing and the festive devils is a brand of this territorial marketing. So that's, that, that's why we, we were talking about uh, who owns the devils, you know, copyrights of the festive devils. Uh, and so a, a number of, of, uh, of uh, important discussions that has to do with the future of uh, this uh, uh, kind of celebrations arise and uh, i would add that uh, this is uh, um particularly important now because uh, with the pandemic crisis uh, we, we are going through uh, this kind of uh, of um, celebrations or rituals of performances are threatened pandemic crisis is to end the paste uh, is uh, less, less important, and as you see, festive devils are impossible to 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 be conceived if we don't consider the smell, the taste, the the the, the, the all the senses in in its uh, in its uh, organic uh, relation. So the risk the risk of uh, be- making the Festive become just a commodity for touristic industry and to making just become like a, a, if a, a abstract icon is very real in this moment. Uh, and I think uh, uh, that's uh, one of the uh, battlefields uh, in the future in this kind of, uh, of uh, uh, discussions.
0: Yes, thank you all so much for kind of those broader themes and broader implications with all this too. And again, bringing it up to some current discussions like you were just getting at um, Paolo. And really, thank all of you for talking with us today about the book. You know, what um, other projects are all of you working on? Um, we can go in the order of Mila, Angela, and Paolo.
2: Okay, thank you. Uh, let me bring up one project that I don't even know if it's still in process or not, but it has to do with this book. And that is, Paolo and Angela talked about it being translated. It was translated by Silvia Cusconqui. Uh, and, and theoretically, there is still a Spanish book out there. So that's, Paolo can tell us whether it is actually going to happen or not. But our idea was that this book would not be published only in English, but that it would be published in Spanish. So the essays that were written in Spanish initially, we translated into English for this book. And the idea was that all of the English essays had been translated by a fabulous uh, Bolivian translator who did many other things for us into Spanish. So I'm hoping that the book will come out in that form. When you get to Paolo, he can tell you a little bit more about it. He's tried very hard. It turned out to be much harder to publish this book in Spanish than it was in English, even though we thought the reverse would be true, but we're still hoping for that. Uh, Moving beyond the book for the last few years, I've really been working on those issues that I kind of talked about today, time and space, how they are transformed, what they mean, time and space in the carnival world. I just recently published a very long essay that really focused on that notion of the transformation of time and space. And I'm also very interested in ethnic and ethnicity, but not just ethnicity, but also national identity. Since we do still live in nation states and particularly in Trinidad, Carnival was taken over by the Afro-based party at the time of independence and made into a national festival. And so I'm very interested in how that transformed the festival, what it did to it, how it undermined, what it undermined and what it did not undermine. And so I've just published a second very long essay say, focusing on that question of identity and relationship to um, Carnival itself, not to festive devils as such. But my real aim, I've been retired now for three years, and I've finished the projects that I had started when I retired, so I'm now looking forward to a brand new direction. And I think what I really want to try to do is to go back now to Shakespeare and to sort of look at what carnival really does mean in a Shakespearean world and Shakespeare's plays, because people who write about carnival in Shakespeare write about it always from the Bactinian liminal uh, time out of time perspective. Nobody looks at what the festive culture of the people in the 16th century really contributed to the larger festive culture, and Shakespeare came from the countryside. So a sense of what that our concept of carnival as kind of American, subversive, embedded in the colonial world, how that helps to inform in reverse our understanding of how an iconic figure like Shakespeare really relates to and reacts to and embodies uh, something like our version of carnival.
3: Yeah, this is Angela. Um, One of my future projects is a book that will be called Festival and Governance. So I've been working on this in the last um, year and a half and have developed a proposal and some um, notes of what will become the book chapters. I see it as a somewhat shorter book in length. You know, it won't be the 400 page. I would love to make it very useful for a performance studies class and maybe even at the undergraduate, advanced undergraduate level but I think it's to try to understand, well, what is this relationship between politics, governance, and festivals? Um, the other thing that I've done in research is still continue to work around Venezuela and some cases in Latin America and always with a hemispheric perspective. But um, I began this work and continue to do it because I feel that certain um to be able to bring this kind of work forward is a part of a broader project towards liberation and towards voicing um, concepts or important things and bringing them into activism. And so, for me, being in the United States and a scholar based in the United States, there's so much work to be done in the United States. <laughs> it's like we really need to work on how are we going to construct a new form of governance in the United States. And as we see, You know, representative democracy absolutely in collapse. Um, And we understand the United States. I hope people understand the imperialist influence that is so negative and destructive that the United States puts upon others that we continuously make other countries, other people from this nation devils. We are, it is a devil factory in the United States right now. So, how do we actually? bring some of that festival epistemology to work for us here and help us reimagine what we could have for governance and really build up some base for popular power here in the United States. So I think that's that's what I'm focused on right now. Oh can I make a mention before I drop because I know we'll be um, and I want to hear Paula but Rose Cano is a person up in Seattle who's working with Ensemble and the diaspora of the Peruvian devils in the Seattle area. So when I said Rosa and I was, it's Rose Cano there. Um, And the other person to mention was spiral time and the idea of the spiral that Milo was a very important influence on the book is Leda Martins, who's a Brazilian scholar. Um, So thinking of spiral time, think Leda Martins as well. Yeah.
2: yes that's absolutely true
1: um, yes yeah, I was uh, telling you uh, last year at the end of 2019 we made uh, this big gathering it was uh, we called it uh, a ludic conspiration and it's uh, it's really it's really a shame that just, just to talk about conspiration now has a total put- totally different sense and meaning and uh, but uh, the idea was to gather together to put together festive devils uh, of uh, very different uh, places and backgrounds and just uh, uh, meet humanity in a in a baroque church with, with all this the the oh, former church now is a museum uh, with all the implications uh, to decolonize such a such a space. villa uh, was there. It was a wonderful experience, and now we are making the Is now going through the 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 the. the, the experience of the pandemics so we pass from uh, the pandemonium to the pandemics and we are waiting for the panacea of of of, of, of the cure uh, so that's something we are working on uh, with uh, the idea that um, that is a um, kind of a poetic performance but it's also a very political one Actually, it, it, it was in the middle of the big social protest uh, and uh, uh, social turmoil that uh, uh, was very spread out through. The, the, the whole group of uh, hundred, over 100 uh, festive devils uh, went out of the church and in front, there was a presidential palace to make a huge, very Bactinian uh, <laughs> laughter. To the to the to the formal power, so that was. Uh, it was a lot of, of fun. The performance. <laughs> it was a lot of fun. So we're working on, on the movie, which is also a documentary. Maybe it's going to become a little bit of a documentary, and uh, maybe uh, and very much longing for having another big meeting of festive devils, or uh, hopefully Angela and, and Emily will be part of it next time and will join us. And um, on a longer run, uh, I'm very thrilled about this idea of, of, the, of the geopolitics of celebrations and in particular, particularly geopolitics of carnival. How carnival is also a, a powerful device to control and organize and retain Uh, festive energies which are important social energies and how it has been used in different places and times to do that so and how it it competes with other celebrations as well right Uh, so um, I'm thinking about writing uh, 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 something uh, on it but that's a a project on the
2: Can I just add one last thing uh, 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 that both Paolo and Angela made me think of in terms of my own work on time? Because we're all talking about how things relate to where we are now in this Rather astonishing world we live in at this moment that we happily have kept out of the forefront of this conversation. But one of the things I think the pandemic has done for everybody is to force us back to look at time because people are losing their sense of what they think of as their sense of time. We're in the house all day long, every day. Nobody knows anymore whether it's Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, or Friday. We've lost the measuring sticks of going to work and those kinds of things that we depended on for a concept of time, which forces us to re- realize how artificial those things are and how little they actually have to do with either the measurement or the passing of time. So I think it's a very good point for us to begin to reconceptualize how time is measured how we define it and how we define ourselves in relationship to it, to realize that the week is an artificial category that just does not cosmically exist. And there's no, nothing in the cosmos to suggest it. Uh, the day has a, has an existence, but it doesn't, it isn't divided into regular hours. It just doesn't happen. You know, it's longer in the winter and shorter in the summer and all that kind of stuff. So I think we are in a position right now as a global culture, to be a little bit more aware of how artificial the concepts of time we've grown up with really are.
0: And even space, even space. That's a really good point. I hadn't thought about how weird time is right now. Oh, my goodness. I don't even know what day it is today.
2: (laughs) There you go. (laughs) Because it's not any real day except what we choose to call it.
3: And what sometimes we're forced to live with, right? I mean, yes, that's really showing the divides because so many people are still very much clocking in every single day. Right. <laughs> and it really is um it it helps us to see where these forces come um in society that actually have so much impact on how we are constructing our world. Um, but I appreciate so much this. I appreciate so much the thought of, you know, Mila and Paolo. Um, really as scholars, so much the work of the scholars who came together for this, for Raul Gibbons, for um, Sylvia rivera Kusikanki, who came to advise the book, for so many other advisors along the way um, who were important to this book. So I, I'm hoping in some way that you can list all of the contributing authors and maybe link to the website or something that shows all of the people who've been collaborators all along.
0: Absolutely. Can I say ha- one?
3: Go ahead. Go ahead, Emily.
0: I was going to say, we have to do a um, blog post with this. So I'll definitely work that in um, well, into the blog post. So-
2: and some of the people who are not actually contributors, like Sylvia, who, uh, and even Leda Martins, who was very important. One of the things we did, I mean, this really was a collective effort that was never just us. And one of the things we did along the way is Angela coordinated a retreat in Mexico paid for by the Hemispheric Institute of Performance and Politics, where we brought Raw Gibbons and a few other people to join with us to talk through the concepts of the book. I think since we think of these devils as largely emerging from collectives and reflecting the ethos of the collective, it was very important to us from beginning to end that we see this process as kind of circling and spiraling and intermingling and weaving together uh, all of these different people in different contexts and uh, situations. And that Mexican retreat was absolutely central. Without that, Raw would not have been my partner, certainly, in writing the chapter. But far beyond that, a lot of ideas came together there.
1: And i just say, Emily, watch out. If you let us uh, brainstorm a little bit more, we, we might come out uh, with another... Uh, collective book or with some other uh, weird idea <laughs> so good, uh, good. Uh, I'm really I'm really pleased that that um, you allowed us the three of us to to get together again after such a long time
0: yeah it was a great talk and I learned a lot from you all and I learned a lot from this book and I think our listeners will also learn a lot from our conversations today and the book as well. So thank you all for joining us on this episode of new books and celebration studies. It was a pleasure having y'all.
3: Well, I think we were finishing. So I wondered if there was a five second pause there that we were doing. Um, Oh, I was. Yeah. Just saying, thank you, Emily, so much for the time that you've taken for the terrific questions and for your interest in, you know, onward with festival studies. Yeah. Keep making it so great to, to know that you're in the world doing this work.
0: Yeah. Listeners, we appreciate you as well. This is the end of an interview with Mila Cozart, Riggio, Angela Marino, and Paolo Vignolo about the edited volume, Festive Devils of the Americas, published by Siegel Books in 2015. This is Emily Allen here on New Books and Celebration Studies a special series on the new books network.